Welcome to the Leadership Drip, coffee and conversations for leaders leading the next generation. We're excited to welcome another incredible guest to the table. But before we do, could you do us a favor and hit that subscribe button? While you're at it, go ahead and give us a five-star review. That helps these conversations reach other great leaders. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to join us at the table for another great episode of the Leadership Drip. Rob, welcome back to the table. We are recording shows. We are recording that shows. That is a good thing right there. We are actually recording on the first day of fall here in Cleveland, Tennessee, and it was it was fall in Cleveland, Tennessee this morning. Yes. It was cold <laughs> yeah. and, and rainy, rainy, and now it's hot and sunny, hot and which sunny. is how it works around That's here. Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. So we have sort of a first on the show. We're always about setting first mm, on the show. Mm. Like, And the first is today that we have somebody with the same last name as one of us. And it's not me because mine's it's, goofy. It's not you. We have our friend Jonathan Pitts on the show. He's That's an right. author, speaker. He's currently the executive pastor of Church of the City in Franklin. I love that city, Franklin. Meredith's Deli, incredible place. Uh, he's previously the executive director of Urban Alternative. And Jonathan is the, also the president and co-founder for uh, of an organization called For Girls Like You Ministries. Uh, which is an equipping and resourcing ministry for tween girls and their parents. I got a couple of those in my house. I do not. Um, Jonathan, welcome to the table, friend. <laughs> hey, guys. Good to be with you. And I didn't realize it was the first day of fall. It makes sense that I have kind of a little jacket on because right? it's pretty so chilly up here like, in Franklin, too. Yeah. Nobody sees this, but I'm the only one without a jacket. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get really <laughs> hot in about 30 seconds. Yeah, well, it's warm in your office. Well, that and I get warm in Alaska, so. <laughs> warm in Alaska. You know, it is. Let's, well, it's up, up north in Tennessee. It is uh, rainy and overcast and a perfect day for a fire, cla- fire, fire uh, what do you call it, fireplace and a cup of coffee. So Yeah, perfect. yeah, we got oh, coffee. We, yeah, all, yeah, hey, we all three have coffee. Well done, well done. Well done. Promoting the brand well, yeah. Drip, leadership drip. <laughs> So, so let's let's clear the air. We talked yeah, a little bit a little bit off the uh, off the show that yeah. we might be related. We just don't think so. We, but in Christ, we're all related. But I'm, yeah. I'm claiming brothers from another mother. Yeah. Brothers from another mother. I, I've only met a handful of people with the same last name. This is very interesting. Um, if you don't know, Jonathan is biracial, black and white. But a lot of pitzes are black. I find mm-hmm. out so, which is interesting. So. I don't know how that works out. I don't know how it's relevant to the story, but <laughs> it's a pretty simple story. It goes back to a little thing called slavery. I always have to explain it because people are like, oh, that's a that last name is English, I think. And I'm always like, yeah, I think it might be. And they're like, well, how'd you get that last name? And I'm like, that's ah, another conversation for another day. But it's you all good. There are, I've met black pitches and white pitches, and I've also met Creole pitches from Louisiana. There's no a way. whole sect of us. There's a whole sect of us in Louisiana that one day maybe you and I will get to meet. We should do that. We should like road trip to down to New Orleans and try to find our people. It's called a pitch trip. <laughs> a pitch tour or something like that. I don't know. Not exactly. You're way off track, I, man. We're way off track. <laughs> so so if you know uh if you know of Jonathan Pitts, you know a little bit about the story that his yeah. wife Winter um, passed away a couple of years ago. She was a prominent writer and speaker. Um, she was the daughter of Dr. Tony Evans. They had an incredible ministry. And, and sort of that's been sort of a critical point in your life and a turning point. Um, and we don't want to dig it all up, but just share us a little bit, share with us a little bit about that story, about the passing of winter and kind of what you called your winter season. Yeah. Uh, just one slight correction. She was a niece of Tony Evans, but oh, she actually, niece. he, you know, her, her dad was, um, is drug addict and was never really in her life. And so Dr. Evans really stepped in. So he's like a, he was like a father to her and a spiritual dad to me. 
but um, yeah, I, you know, it's, a, it's a hard story to make short, but uh, the long and the short is um, I met Winter in college. I was 21 years old. It was just a few days after 9-11, which always makes me think of her 9-11 because um, it was a party uh, to try to get out of the grief of 9-11. But anyway, um, fell in love in college, got married, had our first daughter. We, we got married two weeks after we graduated, um, had our first baby like 10 months later and um almost a honeymoon baby and um essentially just we had four more daughters moved to texas from jersey where we were and i actually fell into ministry with dr evans by nature of just being family and i always said i was close enough to be trusted far enough away to be fired and so we built this life <laughs> for 14 years in dallas um i was uh anthony jr's manager for seven years he's a, a musician artist yeah. uh, worship leader i, I ran his ministry seven years. And then I ran Dr. Evans ministry for seven years, all the while winter was became a stay at home mom. She was a grant writer, decided to come home and hard. That was a hard moment. Cause we basically cut our income in half. And I was like, right. Hey, do hair. You can make a couple hundred bucks a head doing hair and all. And she's like, I'm not doing hair. And long story short in coming home and feeling obedient to what she felt like God was asking her to do and us giving up income. She really fell into her passion, which was hmm. at the point, at that point, we had a seven-year-old, a five-year-old and twin two and a half year olds. And she realized there was a need for content for young girls. And so winter would over the next, um, and really the last, uh, eight years of her life, I guess, um, invest her time in not only our four daughters, but also developing resources for them, which is what for girls like you is the mag unapologetically Christian magazine that she created on accident and would begin publishing all kinds of devotionals and coloring books and different resources around that. And, um, What's crazy is, um, you know, we basically decided to move to Tennessee. I was in a place of like, I'd grown as much as I could within, within what I would call the Evans brand of ministry, loved it, loved what I got to do, felt called to it. And God was moving us on and we both knew it. And so we, um, uh, 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 through Gabe Lyons, if you guys knew Gabe, oh, yeah. friendship with him, yeah, began talking to him about different opportunities. And he was an elder at the church and, uh, Darren Whitehead, my now boss was looking for an executive pastor and, um, essentially uh yeah god was on the move and we'd end up coming here july 10th of 2018 bought our house july 10th i was supposed to start my job on august 1st 2018 and um we'd buy our house on the 10th move in on the 14th we'd be there four nights and then we'd go back to texas for me to finish my last week of work with the urban alternative that last week of um, july after some vacation and uh she would pass away super suddenly in her sleep, essentially, of um, kind of what they call cardiac dysrhythmia. And, mm. uh, you know, I've been telling the story for three and a half years now. So it's not as uh, sometimes it's emotional, but not as emotional in this moment. But what was the most difficult, traumatic moment of my life? Uh, I always look at now as the most hopeful, joyful moment of hers, because the moment that I lost her, she actually met the Savior. And so yeah. that's the story and the hope I've been living in um, for the last three and, a, three and a half years and trying to leave my girls in, by the way, which is probably the hardest thing I've ever walked through. And yeah. um, we're still walking through it. That's the thing. We'll always be walking through that at some level, you know, with my girl. So um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a leadership challenge. Yes, so it's it also a beautiful opportunity to be trusted with something really big with these four girls that have massive mantles in their life. I guess I'd call them for lack of a better term. Well, man, we appreciate so much. You just kind of sharing your story with us and, and, you know, we, we don't uh, take that lightly. We know that those are very vulnerable moments, but as you stated, you know, God is at work and he's doing some really cool things in your life right now. So you want to kind of give us an update sort of on the next phase of, of Jonathan Pitt's life. And I hear that there's some exciting news in the waiting, right? Soon you're going to be married. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I've got, I don't know, by the time this releases, maybe I'll already be married, but I've got nine days until uh, my wedding. Um, and uh, it is honestly the greatest gift I would have never seen coming. Right. And um, an amazingly beautiful, godly woman who I never could have even built her. I couldn't have put her together in my mind. And it's funny, I was just uh, telling you guys, the guy that introduced me to my fiance went to Lee University, a guy named Darren Mormon, who's a um, kind of a faith and family film producer, awesome guy. And so anyway, um, yeah, I met her name's PETA. And um, PETA is an actress uh, in LA. And um, he called me one day and he goes, hey, um, I've got this friend. She's 40. She's single. She loves Jesus. Also, she's an actress in Hollywood. And I literally couldn't put those two things together. It was like one of these moments where I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that I don't know if that's true. And so anyway, I met her via Zoom. It was during COVID and um, literally had my mind blown by the woman who he said the woman who he said was was actually who I yeah. perceived her to be. She got a big story. I've got a big story. We kind of shared our stories. And that was the beginning of us really falling in love. And um, it's been um a massive eye-opening experience for me to understand how broad and big and creative our God is and how creative he is in um, putting people in places um, for reasons. And, you know, I've been this Christian ministry content guy for the last call it 15 years of my life. And uh, my fiance is basically outside of the walls of the church and living for Jesus in really beautiful ways. And I've, as a leader, I've learned so much from her. So yeah. anyway, we get married in uh, California. Most people are leaving. We're going yeah. get married in California and then uh, honeymoon in Hawaii, which I can't wait. I'm, that's, I think that's what I need most is just to be in Hawaii and just to breathe for a little bit. It's been a pretty epic journey getting here. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to a little bit of rest. Yeah. Well, as a SoCal guy, so where are you guys getting married at in SoCal? Well, we were getting married in SoCal, but with my girls and kind of opening up the process to include them in the wedding, we actually uh, moved it. We we're trying to find a bigger location. We had like a really small venue in Orange County and just with all the, I mean, you can imagine all the yeah, yeah. stuff going on there in terms of sizes and stuff. We actually moved to the Central Coast. We're getting married in Cambria, which we had our first date in San Luis Obispo. So oh, yeah, it's just up place. the road from San It's beautiful. Yeah. We're getting married on the beach and then we're doing a reception at Beach Park. It's going to be epic. So very cool. Well, yeah, we're excited. I'm not you know ashamed to say I did a little Instagram stalking, you know, and so uh, but, but <laughs> that's Peter, how he does his research. That's how I do my research, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's <laughs> perfect. It's, research, it's all right? true, so, by the way. All of it's but true. I, I know that Peter <laughs> tells this story on her Instagram page as well and it's a beautiful story so just about how she was praying about adopting children and you know mm -hmm. god brought you and these daughters into her life and just a phenomenal story so man we're so excited for you we're so happy for you and we know that that god is smiling on you right now we just wish you guys all the best and hope you have a beautiful ceremony and all those wonderful so things i gotta yeah. ask jonathan that now that you're you know not not in college anymore and you you dated winter the traditional way we dated we're guys in our 40s you know you met the girl mm -hmm. and you went out and took her out so you met Peter by zoom mm -hmm. sort of, i assume the communication was by text a lot and probably by some facetime and you were a little bit more like a modern day teenager what what was that like as a grown man sort of dating like kids nowadays well it's i mean it's a pretty epic story i mean i think first and foremost it wasn't like teenagers only in the sense that we both just had such massive stories and so yeah. much history to share. It wasn't like, you know, and I've got these four girls. And so from the very beginning, it was actually a very serious process of just like for her, I mean, thank God for her wisdom, just like, Hey, like 
if this isn't real, then we need to not mess around because ultimately there's four little girls whose hearts are on the line. And um, I would say even for anybody listening right now, just pray for us because what looks really beautiful on Instagram is really beautiful and also really hard. There's a lot to it. You know, blending a family is pretty, um, lots of people do it. And um, this is my first time doing it. And it's, there's, there's a lot to it, but I, you know, it was actually really fun. Like the Instagram or the Instagram, the um, zoom thing was a lot of fun. And what we, we, I mean, we'd spend hours on zoom at the very beginning. Our first date wasn't even a date really, I guess it was just an intro. It was like three hours long. And we do like for that first month, like a bunch of zoom calls. And um, then I would text her and I had to kind of chase her. She played hard to get a little bit and was <laughs> like, I'm not, you know, I, I basically this idea of being pursued and I'm like, all right, you found the guy, like I'm in pursuit. So yeah, yeah. what's really beautiful though, is God gave me uh, before COVID I was turning 40, just as COVID was starting in March of 2020. And um, I had a trip to go play Pebble beach and also the same trip to go see my family in Northern California. My parents lived there with my youngest sister and um, what's crazy is COVID canceled my 40th birthday, most depressing day of my life, because I was thinking, okay, I'm turning 40. I lost my wife two and a half years ago. I'm coming out. And literally COVID was like, no, you're not like, you're going to stay right there. And so what's amazing is 40 days after my 40th birthday, I met PETA. I had a trip planned in March to go play Pebble, see family, like I said. And what's crazy is when it canceled, that turned into two trips, um, one in June and one in July, which ended up being my first and second date with her. As God would have it, she'd have a friend move, a friend couple move to Franklin from LA back in December, right before COVID, who would invite her right when I was going out to LA for my second trip to come watch their kids. Cause she, they were like, Hey, we know that LA's closed down. You're not working. Would you come watch our kids um, for like four or five days? We need to go back to Boston and went to Berkeley to kind of spend their anniversary. Uh, they would end up being less than a mile from my house. The only thing between my house and their house is a like a big soccer complex. Mm. And so she ended up coming for, 10 days, quote unquote, that turned into uh, like 40 days and uh, spent the summer here, which is the only way we could really have gotten to know each other. And God oh, yeah. literally set it up. It's pretty crazy. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So a lot to it. Yeah, no, that's that's an incredible story. I'm processing it all, yeah. you know, like it's well, such a sorry, I know it's a lot to I just like oh, no, it's like, so oh, good. We, we love, love it. it. We love it. So so yeah, and we we talk a lot about relationships and certainly, you know. Uh, Jeff uh, could could speak to the blended family conversation, obviously a, a lot more than I could. But but I think I think there's a, a key sort of thread here. We actually just launched a series this week as we're recording the show um, this week on suffering. And mm. so I think for you, obviously, walking through this with with your ministry, walking through this loss, walking through this suffering and seeing how God is still moving and using all of those pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, let one of the things we talk a lot about on the show about this generation, which we specifically are, are aimed for, is the the need for resiliency, right? Mm-hmm. So for you, as as someone who's still pretty young, I mean, you know, someone who's still pretty young, you've, you've endured a lot of loss and suffering. How has this been transformative for you in positive ways? I mean, what is what has God shown you about himself or about his character as you've kind of walked through this journey with him? And how can you uh, maybe encourage the the students who are listening, the Gen Zers out there who are listening, on how to allow God to build that resiliency in their lives? Yeah, I mean, there's so much there to that question. So I'll just answer it probably in a couple of ways. It gets me excited to talk about this. I would say first and foremost, uh, the day that Winter died, I had the biggest eye-opening moment where I really had to, for the first time in my life, probably 
I had to wonder, like, is this faith thing real? Like, is this really real? Is this, is this who I am? Or is this just something I say? And what's beautiful for me is I would say that um, the greatest apologetic for eternal life in my eyes and in my faith is death because it's so unnatural as quickly as she died. I mean, she was here one moment and the next moment she was gone to me. Eternal life is the greatest apologetic or death is the greatest apologetic for eternal life. Mm-hmm. So that's one. And um, uh, the second for me would be, I, I read this book by Leighton Ford. I'd never read a book, book by Leighton Ford before beautiful book called the attentive life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically about paying attention to what God's doing. He has this line in the book where he says, well, it's kind of a phrase that says seeing God in all things and all things in God. And I was reading that book as I was going through my grief process, and I could not help but see God's hand kind of moving through my life and through my story in ways that were undeniable for me. Like one, I'll give you one massive one for me. The day that Winter died, uh, our publisher, because she'd published a bunch of books, and I just was like her husband that was helping her with you know yeah. accounting and stuff in the beginning, right? I'm, I'm a kind of an executive leader, and her publisher would ask us to co-author a book on um, raising girls. We had written this prayer, 30 day prayer journey. And they said, would you guys make a book out of that? And we're like, ah, we don't know. We're not experts. Like we don't want experts. We want people that just doing it. So we did that. Well, then they asked, would you guys do a marriage book? And we're like, no, we're not doing a marriage book. We can't, you know, we're okay at marriage. We're not great at marriage. (laughs) Same thing. They just said, Hey, we don't want to how to, we want us to, you know, join us in the journey. Well, we wrote that book and I literally went to my office that last day, or that was a Tuesday of my last week at the urban alternative with Dr. Evans. And one of the last things I would do would be to sign off in the final edited manuscript of that book. And I would send it to our publisher. I forced her name as well. No big deal. Send it off. I got home and she literally died in my arms four hours later. And for me, I could not help but see the, this reality of God. Well, for whatever reason, he doesn't give everybody this, I'm sure. But he gave me this time capsule of my life, life with my wife of 15 years and 27 days. She died 27 days after our 15 year anniversary. And God gave me a literal time capsule of that. Wow. And so I just couldn't help but see God. And so I'm reading this Leighton Ford book and I'm just realizing um, this thing that Tony Evans says, Tony Evans says, if all you see is what you see, you'll never see all there is to be seen. Mm -hmm. If all you see is what you see, you'll never see all there is to be seen. And that just reminds me of Philippians chapter four, like, you know, uh, whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's honorable, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, dwell on these things, think about these things, which just implies that they're there. Like they're always there to see. And I just feel like God just gave me like this masterclass in watching him unfold these things that I couldn't help but recognize. Yeah. But probably to remind me now in a season where it's really hard, you know, I'm walking through, you know, blending a family and all the things that come with that. And it's just like, I feel alone. And, and God's like, look for what's right. Look for what's true. Look for what's pure. Look for what's lovely. Look for, you know, look for all these things because they actually exist. So that's what I'd say to anybody walking through life. Life is hard in general. Right now you got COVID, you got politics and the, the youngest generation is looking at us, looking at their parents and their grandparents are like, what the heck is going on? And I just think there's so much more to be seen if we look beyond what our eyes can see that God is doing and giving us opportunities to lead into and live into and display a different kind of faith than maybe they've seen modeled um, yeah. by their parents and by their grandparents. Not to, you know, I'm their parents. So I'd like not to not to hate on us as much as just learn from, you know, what they're watching. Now, a good friend of mine, Jonathan often says um, that God takes our pain and makes it our pulpit. Wow. Obviously you've come through this grieving process. Um, where have you seen God sort of leverage that to help other people? Yeah. I mean, I've got lots of stories. The ones that are the, the most enjoyable to me are the ones that feel really personal. Um, one is uh, just a young guy who, you know, I don't know, probably four months ago, reached out to me via Instagram. His wife was dying of cancer, very different than my wife. Winter died really suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, my late wife, I should say. Uh, Winter died very suddenly. And um, 
his wife was dying and he, he just reached out to me and just said, Hey, like, um, somebody gave me your book. I'm reading your book. And like, I just want to know, like, how do you, you know, the things that you're saying, like, did God really do that? Like, yeah. was God really, like, was he really present? Like, how did you see his, because my biggest thing throughout the book is seeing God's kindness. I've got a verse tattooed on my back, never had a tattoo, always wanted one. And it was, this was the first time I ever felt like there was something worthy of having on my body. Sorry if you guys think that's sin, I'm not sure, but no, um, <laughs> Psalm, Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them, yeah. which is really my message in my life. Like I, I watched God step in, the angel of the Lord step in through all of his different people on earth, his representatives filled with his Holy Spirit who walked into my life and served me and loved me through the most difficult season of my life. And I couldn't help but acknowledge it, receive it, have gratitude for it. And so he was just asking me these questions and I've, you know, I've walked with him and now his wife has passed away. She's gone. And probably the greatest um, joy I get is watching him just kind of latch onto that, that hopefulness. Not that he's fully, I'm not even fully there. Like I don't have it all the time. Like I'm in and out of it, but watching him grab onto that hopefulness and watch people grab onto this idea of there is something to be seen behind what we're seeing with our eyes that if we step into in faith, we can actually, yeah, God can use our grief. He can use our loss. And not that he can just use it because he's like, you know what? I want to use his, his wife. So I'm going to take his wife. But like, ultimately that he's a restorer and he's a um, redeemer of all kinds of people. And um, I'm just, I just happen to be one, but um, I don't know. I'm talking in circles now. I hope that makes sense. No, no, no it's you're good. good. It's good stuff. I think, I think, you know, for me, when we, when we frame this from a leadership reality, I think one of the hard questions as leaders, and maybe you can kind of speak to this for a second. One of the hard questions as leaders that we ultimately cannot answer, we know we cannot answer, are the why questions. So when people come to us with their suffering or they come to us with their pain or they come to us with their big questions about why would God allow or why would God do or, um, you know, whatever, is, is navigating that why questioning, helping them understand that the why question is probably not the question that, that they ought to seek. So um, for you, as you kind of work through your own why questions, what was sort of that changing point from you from where you moved to why to who kind of conversation? So how did that work for you? Yeah. I mean, I would first say, and I, I think I somewhat naturally have this built into my DNA and maybe that's why God can, you know, use it. It's not like all of a sudden God just gave me this great surge, the Holy spirit ability yeah. to, to actually turn the why question around. Like, Instead of asking like, oh my gosh, God, why would you only give me 15 years with winter? Why not turn it around and be like, God, like, I can't believe like, wow, why would you give me 15 beautiful years with winter? And these four beautiful girls, like turn the why question around because when we ask the why question and, and with, with sadness and grief, it's typically because we have expected something more than that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's like, I've tried to turn it around and be like, okay, like I'm, yeah, I can, I can be um, entitled and I can ask the why question. I'm not, I'm not trying to bash anybody for asking the why question. There's lots right. of them. I've had them. I'm just saying, if you flip it around there, you can actually make it more of like a, you can turn it to what's true and right and audible and pure and lovely. Like what's the, like, God, why would you think me worthy to be married to this amazingly beautiful girl? Why would you call me to her side? Like I saw how you used me in her life and how like our, my ability to actually be a humble husband grew her like it's just so much more joy that you can find when you actually ask the why question a different way mm. and i didn't deserve 15 years with her i should have lost her in year one you know yeah. <laughs> i have these four beautiful girls that are her spitting image like i mean there, there's so many things that are um better to think about in the why and so my, my biggest encouragement would actually be to just turn it around yeah and think about not just what 
Cause you know, grief is uh, what I always say. Grief is, is dealing with lost expectations. That could be like, I thought I was going to get this job. I thought I was going to move out of my parents' house after I graduated from college. And now I can't afford to, or whatever that, whatever that thing is, you're just dealing with lost expectations. And I think one of the healthy ways to deal with lost expectations is actually just to expect less. Like grief is hard. Cause I thought I'd be married to winter for 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I didn't expect that, then I wouldn't, it wouldn't be so hard. So I just think there can be some benefit and not just flipping it to the who, but also flipping the Y around. So that's good. It's funny is uh, I heard one of your Franklin resident friends probably say that recently, John, if you know, John Acuff, who's a writer and author there mm-hmm. in Franklin, he said something similar in his podcast that to, to increase your sort of joy and being present in something, decrease your expectation. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which I thought was so interesting because if you expect less then you get more present in that moment and you seem to enjoy it most or more, which is what you're, you seem to be saying, Jonathan, is that, that, if you decrease the expectation, those 15 years are now so reflective of so much more joyful than what you seem to have lost. Um, and and yeah, with, which is to be echoing sorry. out one of your messages, I know is gratitude. And it seems like without you're, you're not verbalizing it, but it's just the tone of what you're saying is you're so thankful for what God gave you. Yeah. Yeah. Actually um, probably the message I got to preach that was teach, preach, talk, whatever you want to call it. Cause I never felt like a preacher or a teacher. But the message that I've gotten to share that so resonates with my soul that I'm I'm really glad I was able to do. I, I got to preach at our downtown location, um, and it was on uh, Philippians four, which I talked about. You know, whatever's true, right, honorable, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about these things. What um, a lot of um, you know theologians would call that is the discipline of celebration. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. having gratitude and celebrating isn't just something we either have or we we don't have. It's something we discipline ourselves to do. Yeah. And I would say as leaders, what would be really helpful is to discipline ourselves to have less expectations and discipline ourselves to have gratitude, to see the glasses half full, to, to see what God is doing that is actually ultimately good and not seeing or questioning why it might be bad. Like, you know, when I say the thing about, and this, this really was like, for me, I, I had no choice. I'm like, okay, I believe what I believe is true. And if what, what if, if what I believe is true when winter died, the moment she died, she was in proximity to Jesus, like literally not just figure like she's literally in the presence of Jesus. If that's true, that should change my perspective on my loss. Not that it doesn't, it doesn't change. It doesn't hurt less because ultimately she's not here anymore, but at least changes it from being like, Oh my gosh, it's God evil. He took her out of here when it might be like, what's what if that's the greatest thing that ever happened to her? You know, like, as opposed to me thinking the greatest thing that could ever happen to her is staying with me and my girls. That's a really bold thing to say. Like, but it's a truth thing. Like that's the reality of what we believe, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I, th- I think, yeah, as a leader, like expecting less and then also actually living with the perspective that we say we have as believers is really mm-hmm. important. Like not just thinking it like when it feels good, but thinking it even when it feels hard. So yeah. Yeah. I've not been perfect at this, by the way, it might sound like I'm saying I am. I've not been perfect at it. Yeah, we, yeah. we we're just happy that you're sharing the the vulnerable story with us which yeah. i think helps people who have walked through some sort of loss or grief um and it, and it seems like if you from a perspective i'm sitting here going connecting the dots and going okay so the loss of winter but you spent all these years doing a for girls uh like you ministry and now you're a single dad of four girls Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the Lord maybe used that as preparation for the season where you'd be a single dad? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, ultimately, you know, I, the thing I'm really grateful for as a dad 
and maybe as leaders we need to be thinking about is the investments that we make now are, are so necessary for the health of our future and for the success of our future. And the thing I'm most grateful for with my girls is Winter and I, and the ministry was birthed out of this. Like we just really were prayerful and, and we did the best we could to be intentional parents. And mm-hmm. so like with my girls specifically, the thing I was the most grateful for with my girls, we walked through some really difficult times is that I didn't wait to get to know them until they lost their mom. So like mm-hmm. when winter was yeah. gone, yeah, went through some really hard times, but we didn't have to actually go back and be like, okay, now let's build a relationship. Let's, so like, it was just really important. And, and, you know, what was neat is God assisted us in that because all of a sudden we're doing it and then we're birthing this ministry that's about that. So we feel this responsibility to do it more, you know, I mean, even, even the fact that I'm really grateful for, um, you know, typically if a parent leaves like a letter for their child or a, you know, a video for their child, like their child will just continue to watch that thing and remember that thing. Well, my girls have, I mean, at this point, like 18 different books that they don't ever have to be at loss for what their mom thought about them or how she prayed for them. It's just, I'm really grateful for that. And um, just really special. So, but yeah, and and it's interesting. Like I I actually, the last, I don't know, year or so I've been doing all I can. I was doing all I can to say, okay, how do I run this ministry anymore? I'm a dad. My girls are aging out of this tween space and I'm going to just try to hand this ministry off to another ministry that can take care of it better. And I feel like what God's told me the last couple months is like, nope, you've been a father to these four girls and this ministry. You're going to keep being a father to this ministry, figure out how to still be a father to this ministry as it continues to go. And so I'm, I'm still learning a lot. I'm walking in a lot of, um, I guess I call them tensions of things yeah. like my life in my past, where I'm going in my future and not knowing how God's going to work it out. And the, the greatest mistake I've made in that is trying to think ahead of God and figuring it out for him instead of just sitting in it and just resting. And so yeah. I'll, I'll run six miles down this road and God's like, I didn't tell you to do that. Like, why are you, why are you way down there? <laughs> so anyway, I'm still learning in this process, but that's awesome. John, let me say this as a, is a dad of one who's set a girl who's 17 and one that's 14. We need voices like yours to help us walk together in it because some of us dads, like we just don't know what to do. Like we're yeah. trying our best with it, you know, like, like there's just things as dads we don't get with girls. And I'm like, I'm just navigating it going, Hey, I'm trying my best. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I'm trying to be present. I'm trying to show love. I don't know if you need chocolate or if you need time or what, what the moment is right now. Yeah. So it's important. And you feel in a lot of those moments you feel hated. Like you're like, Oh my gosh, do they hate me? Well, and, or, or you're uh, just at a loss, like, cause you're yeah, trying to yeah. be dad and be like, I need to come in and step in and do something. You're like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, no idea. No idea. You know, the thing I, I'll never forget this because winter, I think it was um, James Dobson raising, raising girls, the book. And I never read it, but she told me that he said in the book that when your daughter pulls away the most, that's when you're to pull her in the closest. And so that's the one piece of advice I got. I'm still trying to do is just like when they react to try to push away, you just pull them close. And uh, my girl's counselor now tells me, you know, the moments where you feel the most, uh, and I know this isn't a podcast on raising girls, but like the moment you feel the most, um, the most like they resent you, don't like you is actually them testing to see if you'll, if you actually, if you do love them, you know? Right. So right. anyway, that's a whole other story for another day, but I, uh, I'll be praying for you, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> please a, do, please yeah. Do. I've got four teenagers now and it's pretty full on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's not a show about, about girls per se, obviously, but, but I think it does speak to the relationality of what we are trying to accomplish in ministry to Gen Z specifically right. with, with the podcast, because I think this generation echoes so many similarities to that. It's, 
it's the it's the pushing away of the of the institutionalism it's the pushing away of the traditionalism and some of that i get is is understandable you know that i'm not mm-hmm. saying that but but at the same time the local church if we could just shift gears a little bit needs to understand that that as gen z sort of pushes away this is perhaps no greater time in in the history especially of the american church where we need to lean in and grab them you know right. like like yeah. you're just talking about as a dad to the, to that daughter like as they as they resist sort of um, you know, uh, the heart of the church or the point of the church or the purpose of the church, maybe, maybe now is the most aggressive we should ever be with, with young adult, mm-hmm. young adults and Gen Z and, and really going out of our way to, to help them understand that we love them. Yeah. I yeah. I, I think that what's really important in that is, yeah, I once heard this illustration about this idea of, you know, like I grew up, you know, when I was learning to drive and, I'd be like, dad, can I drive? Can I drive the car off my permit? He'd be like, son, get in the passenger seat. And, you know, he'd rather drive. Like it's his yeah. car. He's an adult. I'm a child. He'll let me know when to drive. And I think the, I'm not trying to bash my dad either, but I think the, one of the important things we need to do is learn how to trust the younger generation to drive ministry yes. and trust that they're not, to not just look at all the things that we think are wrong about what uh, who they are and where they are, but just trust that the heart of God, the spirit of God is inside of them. Yeah. And they've got a unique contribution. So we don't have to keep driving. I think the hardest thing right now is most of our ministries, most of our institutions don't want to let go all the while, not fully knowing how to, to minister to the younger generation. It's like, Hey, if we would just let the younger generation in and be a part yeah. of our institutions with all their quirks, with all their differences, with all the things that we think might be, um, that aren't biblical issues, by the way, but are right, right. differences in culture or differences in how we approach things. Like if we would just allow them in enough to bring that to the table, then we could, you know, older generation, younger generation, side by side, work together and have a bigger influence for the kingdom of God, as opposed to, you know, just telling them you can drive when I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> essentially, Let, Let's so. localize the conversation for you a little bit, Jonathan. You're at Church of the City there in Franklin, which is a great church, great yeah. pastor, great team. Mm-hmm. Um how is that being lived out in the reality there of, of the church there in Franklin and the other campuses around the, around the United States? Yeah. Well, Darren was just actually preaching on this just a couple weeks ago, just the, and this isn't even something that he would claim that we did as much as what God did. We merged, we took a, a, a small, Darren had a small startup church with like, I mean, it grew fast to 700 or so, but that church merged with a, a, a Baptist church, the people's church, uh, which was, you know, predominantly baby boomers and, some younger families, but now we have this beautiful multi-generational church. And the thing we're trying to do the most right now is keep that multi-generational church on the same mission, as opposed to like dividing them in ministry and dividing them, but just actually having them serve together. I mean, that's the kingdom. The kingdom is broad, not just generationally, but it's broad racially, racially, it's broad socioeconomically. So what does it look like for the kingdom of God actually look like the kingdom of God, which means lots of different people, just like the disciples being together that had no business being together. Like probably the best thing that we could do to usher in the kingdom is gathering together and not doing what the world is doing, which is dividing by politics or dividing by class or dividing by race or divided by whatever, actually coming together and people being like, I don't understand. Like, how are these people, how are they getting wrong right now? Like he's a Democrat, he's a Republican, he's a, you know, whatever name, name the categories. Like, the bottom line is in the kingdom of God, we don't have the option to not be unified. And so I think at Church of the City, we've, we've really sought to do that uh, uh, generationally. Um, it's much harder to do. I actually lead the um, advisory council for race, justice and reconciliation here. And racially, it's harder because the makeup of this community, especially right. in our in our Franklin campus, is pretty monolithic. But we're trying to figure out how do we seek the heart of God in 
seeking out relationship beyond where we are, which also lends itself to socioeconomics because, you know, once you start branching out socioeconomically, you will cross paths with lots of people that don't look like you, talk like yeah. you, live yeah. like you. Um, so, so, yeah, but I think, yeah, generationally. Basically, what you're saying is we need to live out John 17. That's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's right, the prayer of Jesus in John 17. And so, uh, yeah, I think, I think is one of the key factors, and Barna points this out in the research, one of the key factors is, uh, for Gen Z is they need those intergenerational relationships. They're actually craving them. They're, they're right. desiring mm-hmm. them. And so as leaders, and, and part of what we talk about on the show all the time, is allowing ourselves the space and the grace to actually invite them in to allow them to be a part of our story and our journey and to allow them to actually reverse mentor us into an understanding of, of who they are, what their generation is doing and what actually they, they bring to the table right now, not 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. So, so I love this conversation that you guys are having at, you know, church of the city on just on how to do that in a way that honors God and honors each other. So uh, I guess my, I mean, next question is for you in your position, another, another kind of key facet of, of this generation is that they are very entrepreneurial. Everybody wants their own Instagram page. Everybody wants their own, you know, Snapchat success or whatever. Right. So in your particular role as an executive pastor, you're not necessarily the man on front all the time. Right. So Mm -hmm. how have you sort of besides your calling, you know, you're called to do this, but how has it been for you sort of being behind the scenes more and dealing with the more interpersonal aspects of the church instead of being the person on the stage all the time. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's uh, trying to figure out how to answer that question. I I will say first that I I actually stepped out of my executive pastor role just a few months ago, just based on where I'm at in life. And, but I would say in, when I was in that role, um, you know, the thing that I really valued about Darren uh, when I came to Church of the City is he said, hey, bro, like not only, you know, we have a mission, we have a vision, and we got to get after that. Like the church has that. But in addition to that, and this was when my late wife was still alive and Winter was still alive, he said, you guys have a vision, vision and you have a mission, and we want to be supporting that as well, which I had never heard that before. Right. I, mean, I had served in ministries and contexts where, you know, you got the man, you got the mission, you got the vision, and you execute. And so I think there's, it's got to be a balance of inviting, you know, these younger folks in that are entrepreneurial, that do have all these different thoughts about things they want to do and inviting that in and, and allowing a freedom to do that in a way, obviously with policies and guidelines, because it can get out of hand. But the younger generation has to understand that, you know, I mean, I thought the same thing. I thought, I mean, I came into Dr. Evans Church at 27 years old and thought I should be running the place. <laughs> Little did I know I shouldn't have been running the place. Like I was just not in a place to run the place. So I think it's a balance of, those that are in power in leadership that are going to be probably in their forties, maybe young, you know, older thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, not being afraid of having some of those, that younger generation in with their entrepreneurial spirit, while also at the same time, the younger, younger people with entrepreneurial spirits submitting themselves and humbling themselves enough to know, like I had to, and I learned by, you know, I, I learned through mistake and even loss of opportunity moments that I actually don't deserve to be there. Like I, if I'm going to, if I'm going to gain influence, I actually have to gain trust first. Mm, and good. oftentimes we want influence without trust. We want influence without experience. We want influence without the things that, 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 you know, you don't, you don't actually really have all that much to share until you actually get, you know, trust, you get uh, uh, experience. And also you just experience some things that can hurt because it, it just humbles you. I've, you know, I've been humbled many times over and I feel like I'm a better leader because of it. And mm. I thought I was the guy I was 20 something years old. I'm like, I'm the guy I can do this. Like I know how to do this better than them. 
And I'm really glad that I didn't get put in that seat because I know I would have probably, you know, failed pretty miserably, pretty publicly. So, um, wow. yeah. I feel like I was that way in my early 20s. I was the guy. I could have, I had it all figured out. <laughs> oh, and, <did> we not? <laughs> and and now here at 44, I'm running a podcast, talking to people and going, hey, how do we do it? Like, <laughs> tell me how to do it. Like, again, and what I love is, and I think this is what we, if we can figure this out as leaders, young adults and young people have so much zeal that if we can harness in the right yeah. direction, mm-hmm. we can get a lot accomplished. If we can match their zeal with the wisdom of older leaders and kind of put them together mathematically somehow and get them to run together with that. I think that's when the kingdom just explodes with the zealousness of young people and the wisdom of older leaders. I think in this multi-generational context that we talk about, that's when we start to see things really take off. Um, And I think that's the merger that we got to figure out how to accomplish is like that zeal and that wisdom together. Yeah. And I think a part of that is just being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Like you got to get uncomfortable. You're not going to be comfortable, you know? And that's not just even generationally. That's like across every difference within the kingdom of God. People don't want to be uncomfortable. They'd rather be with their people. Like I'd rather be, if I'm a Republican, I'd rather be Republicans. If I'm a Democrat, I'd rather be with Democrats. And God's like, no, you don't get, you don't get the option to just pick sides and be just with your people. You really have to be open to being uncomfortable and you'll learn a lot in that process. And I'm trying to do that myself. I'd rather be comfortable too, you know? (laughs) So, but I think getting uncomfortable is first step. And that's not just like speaking generationally. It's not just the older people that are running institutions being comfortable, getting comfortable with the younger generation. It's the younger generation being like, you know, I'm going to submit to, they've, they've lived a lot of life. They've gone through a lot of experiences. They're not just the way they are because they're cranky and they're older and they're right. afraid. It's like, there's, there's reasons why, you know, wisdom comes with gray hair. Like you go through a lot. So. Um. <laughs> and what, what we found in talking to younger leaders is that most of them who are leading well, have mentors have older people yeah. in their life giving them guidance and wisdom yeah um mm-hmm. young leaders who are leading well seem to have that yeah so for sure it's awesome awesome well we are coming to kind of the end of our time here jonathan man we are so appreciative of you being on the show but we have one final question that we ask every guest who comes on the podcast we are obviously here on the campus of the university on what's turned out to be a sunny afternoon it's a gorgeous afternoon. yeah yeah so here's the final question what is one lesson you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom one man gosh i wish i'd have uh prepped for this one one lesson that I learned that didn't take place in the classroom. You know, I, I would just say, and this is, this is going to sound kind of cliche a little bit, but, you know, I went to college. I was a ministry kid. My parents weren't paid ministry leaders, but they were volunteer ministry leaders my whole life. And I went to college thinking like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do it myself. And um, I guess the lesson I learned, I did a lot, I, I made a lot of mistakes. I tried to live life my way. I kind of pushed away from my parents' faith, so to say. And I was just met with extreme grace by God himself, not people, God himself, that that probably helped me understand the depth of my salvation the most at that, that young of age. I didn't learn that in the classroom. I learned that through failure, like literally trying things my way, partying this way, doing this thing, doing that thing, and realizing that none of it brought life. All of it was lifeless. And the only thing that could actually, you know, take any way a level of shame for that was the grace of God. And so, yeah, I'm grateful to have that. Then I'm grateful to have it now. Kind of cliche, but probably the biggest lesson I learned in college. Not not cliche at all, actually. Yeah. So, so we have yeah. one bonus question maybe for Jonathan. If there was one thing that Rob and I could buy you off your wedding registry, what would it be? 
I didn't know it's on my wedding registry. <laughs> um, you know, I, the one thing I do know we, we have on our wedding registry is actually we're doing a work. So I have this house in Franklin. Franklin's getting more and more expensive. It's kind of crazy. And um, uh, we're basically making a new space, a second master. And so we have like a, I think there's like a cash thing that allows people to kind of contribute to that. But we don't even know what we need yet. Like she's 41. I'm 41. We've got these four girls. Like we're like, we don't know what we need. There's, we have a lot of stuff. My house is full of stuff. So the question is, what do we need? We don't know. So you could always buy me some hot tamales or some cinnamon bears. Though I'm always a big fan of hot tamales. Hot tamales. Hot tamales. That's, my, bears. that's my wife's favorite. We will, we will have those in the mail. <laughs> awesome. Hey, man, thanks so much for being on the show. And honestly, I really want to uh, we'll try to get you here to lead sometime to, to be a part of the campus. But uh, man, we love to have you on the show today. And as we always say here at the Leadership Grip, or you got a seat at the table. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, guys. Good getting to talk to you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. If something from this episode was helpful for you, then share it on your social media and tag us. If we see it, we may reshare it on our channels. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. And remember, you always have a seat at the table.